The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you, Ying. Thank you. I love this um, study and meditate a little bit, talk about things, and I don't know. It's I think it's a beautiful way in which you know we can consider daily life in some ways, right? We're busy with stuff, but to also get interspersed with quieting down. Okay. So now I'd like to maybe um, pull out uh, uh, into like the 30,000 foot view or some of what we've explored and talked about in this uh, portion of the sutta. So we saw some very human elements of the Buddha getting sick, dying, talking about it's old, how he's old and how he has uh, pain. Um, but we also saw some supernatural elements too. I mean, the Buddha himself is quite amazing. He knows when he's going to die. We didn't emphasize this and. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure if we included that in the excerpt, but he knows when he's going to die. That's not, you know, a usual thing that we know when we're going to die. But he um, takes it with has such ease and grace about this. But of course, there's these earthquakes that happen and flowers that are falling from the sky when he first is laying down. And then the town gets completely covered with flowers. They're even on the rubbish heaps. So everything is flowering, even that which is conventionally or traditionally would have thought of as maybe dirty or lowly or something like this. And then, of course, we saw the devas. These are non-embodied entities. Maybe I'll just say in the side that as we saw in the Sutta, devas are not like what the Christians would think of as angels. That the devas have no special um, insight. They are just like humans. They have to find their way to awakening. Right? They're not awakened. They just happen to be disembodied. And we also see um, the Buddha here being aggrandized, right? That he's so many, both the devas and humans are upset when he's about to die and after his death. So kind of highlighting the importance and right, even today, right? Not everybody um, has the, the mask or the flag flown at half mast or have, you know, lying in state or these types of things, right? But he's a, not only do, are lots of people upset, but he has a funeral that is like a wheel-turning monarch, Chakravartin. And I used this word briefly last time. This, at the time of the Buddha, would have been the most senior human being possible in the, in the universe. You know, the, it's the highest position, a non-spiritual, non position. So he's given the highest that are known to the tradition, the highest uh, respects and the, the what's happened with the, the funeral rites. Not only that, but uh, Brahma, which 
and Sakka are uh, speak after the Buddha's death. These two non-human entities are the highest. Sakka is the lord of all devas, and Brahma is one of the dominant religious tradition of that time. He would have been the highest entity. So whatever traditions there were, the most senior, right? So we see this real um, aggrandizement of the, the Buddha. But also one thing is interesting for those of you who are familiar with the suttas, and even for those of you who aren't familiar with the suttas, the suttas do not contain a biography of the Buddha. Usually, like what the tradition holds, is piecing together little pieces from here, and most of what's in that uh, tra- story is not actually in the suttas, even though we, uh, uh, if it's in the suttas, it's not attributed to the Buddha. So how do we hold this also, that the Buddha as a person, somebody who had a birth and had you know a journey and a death, that isn't um, held together in a concise biography. The Buddha only talks about himself in the context of teaching. He uses it as an example and when he's trying to make a point. So I just want to kind of highlight, you know, these different elements of how the Buddha is portrayed. And the more we look at the, the, um, the suttas, whether it's this particular one or whether it's um, all of the what's preserved in the Nikayas, we'll see there's different elements and different aspects and different traditions hold this differently. And even within traditions, different individuals hold it differently. And as I mentioned also last time, the four of us, Ying, Kim, David, and I, you know, we have our own um, emphasis in the way that we're holding it, and we're sharing this with you. But the last thing that we want is for some dogmatism or some fundamentalism and say, this is the way it is, and you have to believe that. Instead, as being highlighted, we are pointing to the importance of practice for us to find our way with this, to understand it, to understand um, these teachings, as well as uh, who the Buddha was and um, the role that he has in Buddhism. And sometimes a question is asked, well, what would you do if the Buddha showed up in 21st century, Western, modernized world and said, you know what? that actually wasn't true, what I said. And I'm not sure what you guys have been attributing to me, but it's not true. You know, how would your response be? This is a way for us to kind of explore our relationship to the Buddha as a person, as opposed to the teachings that have been passed down. So one thing that, uh, however we hold this, and I'll I'll talk about this a little bit more in, in just a moment, but I, for me, I feel touched that the Buddha, he had a beautiful, peaceful death. And he, um, earlier in the sutta, had told Mara that he had accomplished what he wanted to do with his life. That he had made sure that the monastics and the lay people, all of them, had clarity and knew what to do. And that's, for me, is inspiring. He also made funeral arrangements. He said, well, okay, so after my death, it's like I'm a wheel-turning monarch. And, um, and he 
laid down between these trees outside. It wasn't a private thing that he knew that lots of people would want to come see him. And he um, made himself available. And then, of course, through he dies, he, um, as Kim pointed out last time, he goes through the jhanas, these meditative states. So it's a beautiful, peaceful death to, to recognize that it is possible. And not only did he have this peaceful death, but he prepared the sangha before his death. We didn't go through this part of the sutta, but the early part, the first half, big portion of it is the Buddha going to this location and giving a comprehensive discourse and then going to another location and giving a comprehensive discourse and then going to another location. So he's making sure that as many people as possible have access to his teaching and have, uh, are able to hear from him directly. And he gives uh, directives on how to keep the community together, even including this little bit uh, how the junior and senior monks should address each other, right? Just like, okay, here's the community, how to organize yourselves and how you can um, address each other as a way of, to make sure that there's some um, concord within the community. And he talks about who will be the next leader. We write about, he doesn't think in terms of who shall take charge of the order, but be a refuge unto yourself. And he says, what I have taught and explained to you as the Dharma and discipline will at my passing be your teacher. So he's doing some succession planning. <laughs> and he even talks a little bit about the teachings. You know, there has been no teacher's fist, he says in chapter 2, section 25. So this idea that he didn't hold back. There isn't some secret inside teachings. That's what this tradition holds Later traditions say, well, actually, there were a bunch of secrets, but our tradition doesn't hold that. The tradition here and the uh, based on the Pali canon, and then Kais doesn't say that. And then he even gives directives on, like, on how to recognize these teachings in chapter 4, section 7. So, and he um, even does a little bit of this housekeeping of um, the Chana reliefs should receive the Brahma penalty and abolish the minor rules. You know, these types of things, he just wants to make sure that they know how to go forth, go forward. So then we can ask ourselves, what do we expect from these suttas? Just us as practitioners. And maybe I will uh, share a little story. When I first encountered the suttas, I was gung-ho. I just love them. And this is my tendency to like want to study and really understand things. And underneath that is this kind of belief like, okay, the answer, quote unquote, is got to be here somewhere. This Buddhism at the time for me, it just spoke to me so deeply and resonated. And I felt like, oh my goodness, there's this polycanon. If I read the polycanon, then there will be the answers will be there and can assuage any of this anxiety or uncertainty or any of those things that I have. And wow, that reading that was so powerful until I discovered two suttas that just flat out disagreed with one another. And I was like, wait, what? Wait, 
wasn't this supposed to be all nicely organized and consistent? And, <laughs> and I had this like, oh, this is heartbreaking. How can there be contradictory things in here? How do we know which is true, quote unquote, which is real? And I went to a senior teacher and I talked about my distress about this. And this teacher said something that really touched me in such a deep way. And he said, well, Diana, of all the philosophies and religions in the world right now, you are engaging with this one. And it might be that there's things here that don't make sense, that are troubling, offensive, confusing, alarming, beautiful, touching, uplifting. But you've chosen to use this tradition, these teachings to engage with, to argue with, to um, work with, and to find your way with. Can you be okay with that right now? And somehow that was really supportive. Like, okay, of all the teachings in the world, somehow this one really did sing, had, had my heart sing, sing to me in some kind of way. And I am choosing to argue with these ones and be inspired by these ones. So I just offer that as this is as my experience. And then, you know, I went on to study Pali and now I can see the, um, Polly that's underneath a lot of these translations and that has had even a whole nother uh, impact on my on my relationship with the suttas so just an encouragement for all of us to maybe even ask ourselves what are we expecting from these suttas what would we like to find in there and Maybe I would even make it even more broad. What do we hold to be authoritative? What are we going to do when the teachings say one thing, the teacher says a second thing, and our experience is a third thing? This is something for all of us to find our own way, our own way with this. Because the more you study, the more you'll discover this, as well as the more you'll be inspired, hopefully. So maybe I get back to, I'd like to encourage some non-fundamentalism, some non-dogmatism. This is my um, tendencies. I can say this for Ying, Kim, and David as well. And just instead a real encouragement to um, us to find our way with this. And then I also want to say, we'll address this idea, well, what is a sutta anyway, right? Because this is um, this naughty problem, naughty in terms of like having lots of knots, um, not naughty as an <laughs> opposite of nice, but, uh, um, you know, all practitioners who are really looking at the sutta have to uh, work with this. And there's often a tendency to kind of dismiss those teachings that don't align with what our preferences are or our understandings are and to keep the ones that we like. I would um, say, well, maybe we, rather than just dismissing and forgetting, we can say, mm, you know, this one isn't quite sure. I'm not, I'm not sure about this. 
But I do want to say that, um, as was pointed out in the last class, the suttas were held in, with an oral tradition initially. And we see that showing up in all kinds of ways. Um, I won't go into all of that right now, but when you look at the Pali, you can see um, how it's organized. Much of it is uh, to help with memorization. And we might think today, like, oh my goodness, what's, what's, how does that work? All this uh, memorization. Oh, am I going over my time? I am. So I'll just end here with this. I'll say two things about this memorization. One, again, going to look at the historical context. There was no reading. There was a little bit of writing, but it was done for business. It was done for uh, business. So um, instead, at that time, all religious teachings were held by memorization. And this was people's job. This is the only thing they did was memorize. They were professional memorizers. So that's one thing. Can you imagine how your brain would be different if you never read anything ever, but instead memorized, right? Your brain just gets developed differently. And then second, I'll say that these were preserved by arhats, people who don't have greed, hatred, and delusion. So their, their minds aren't muddied, maybe I'll say, with um, some of the of some of the things that to those of us who still have some greed, hatred, and delusion. So I just offer that as something to consider. So now I'll uh, pass it back to Ying. Thank you. Thank you, Diana, for uh, um, so wonderful uh, overview again, our review <laughs> and uh, capping it off together. So I want to uh, just, because this is our last time together, uh, we just want to open it up for additional questions, comments. And I realized that uh, Kate and uh, Rob also shared something um, in the chat box. And I just read that. Mary Oliver has a poem called The Buddha's Last Instructions. And this class has illuminated uh, its meaning to me. Thank you. Thank you. So I can use uh, the raise hand function uh, to do this. Okay, I see David. Uh, Go ahead, unmute. Excuse me. Yeah, thank you. Well, it's just uh, something that Diana said brought to mind. Um, I I think that... Uh, sutta where the Buddha addressed exactly what she's pointing to it's in the numerical discourses if I recall but basically it stands for that there's no absolute teaching it's what leads to goodness what leads you know to whatever how you want to translate wholesomeness happiness all these things it's like you you practice and what leads to those things for you is right practice. It's not implementing any fundamental teaching. There is no fundamental teaching. And that's all I say. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David. Yeah. I'm also just reminded by the sutta and again and again, the Buddha 
was repeating the instruction of being mindful, clearly aware. And this is where we began to see what is wholesome, what is skillful for us, and what is unwholesome and unskillful. And it will ever, um, it's an ever-changing um, uh, perspective that we will see as well. Um, you know, things that we used to believe is, was right and was good for me, maybe as we begin to see more and more, well, I'm not really sure. <laughs> and so it'll keep unfolding in this way so, and not um, uh, holding on to something so strongly um, and as we see them right away. And is what uh, the teachings are pointing towards as well, yeah. And I see uh, L, and you're clapping. Not sure if you have a comment. <laughs> I thought that was to raise the hand. My apologies. Okay. No I'm problem. new at this stuff. In fact, <laughs> until Diana mentioned, imagine memorizing everything and what your brain would be like. I wasn't really going to say much. I want to thank y'all for uh, allowing people from other areas to join, as well as, for example, to not be so uh, militant about the uh, writing hand-ins. Because, let me share something, I am severely dyslexic. I speak very well, um, but I have a tough time reading, and I'm near, you know, illiterate with writing. And so it's just been the last year when I've been forced to have to deal with the world in a different way, right? Messages back and forth when I used to make sure that my career was mostly my voice. So I just want to thank you all for, and I just want to say how uh, important some of this stuff is. Uh, and I agree with Diane. Uh, so I've even used Polly as a way to deepen my relationship with the Dharma as well. So Dharma, mm. apologies. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Al. Yeah, yeah. There are enormous human capacities in so many different ways. Um, I see Nancy's hands up. Maybe the ching saw stopped. <laughs> Go ahead, Nancy. Um, the chainsaw stopped. <laughs> um, I don't know if you went over this at the very end of the last class. I had to leave early, so I apologize if um, I'm asking you to repeat anything. But at the end of the suttas that we were assigned, there's um, the person who said, oh, you know, finally the great aesthetic is gone and we can go around do as we please or not as we please anymore. And I seem to remember maybe it was in the longer reading that we weren't assigned that the Buddha had initially requested a very simple cremation to be done quickly and um, no big shrines or not a big to do. And then um, it turns into this very elaborate a ceremony that takes seven days for him to get cremated and there's lots of pageantry and they make all of these shrines and all of these different places. And um, I'm just wondering if that was showing a contrast or how easily the message can be lost or I didn't really know what to make of that. Diana, would you like to say a few words? 
I'll say that um, in the sutta, in this Mahaparinibbana sutta, there's a distinction between uh, what the monastics are doing and what the townsfolk are doing. So the instructions to Ananda is kind of like, don't bother yourself with the funeral rites. And it's the townsfolk who are having, it sounds like a fantastic party, right? There's dancing and singing that goes on for days, right? Like this. So um, then maybe that's what you're pointing to is that uh, the Buddhists talk, talking to Ananda, you know, don't, don't worry about that. And it's the townsfolk who do something different. So, And there was also this point of, uh, uh, and then one of the monks said, oh, you know, now the Buddha is gone. <laughs> we can do whatever we want to, to do. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, you know, I'm not as um, uh, versed in the, uh, the scholarly aspect of this, uh, but personally, when I read this, uh, I found it also pointing to some of the humanness um, of um, the community that he's around. And there are people who might be taking uh, the Buddha as some really strict teacher <laughs> that they don't want it to be uh, listen, uh, listening to. And there are someone uh, who might kind of stir up some things uh, in the community. And that's certainly the case uh, in the few later traditions and there are various debates that are happening. And in Buddhist times, and there are suttas also, when the uh, Buddha went to uh, uh, demolish them once, twice, three times, they don't listen to the Buddha. <laughs> and the Buddha said, okay, I'm not going to deal with you. <laughs> so and the Buddha left and uh, went to uh, some other place. Yeah. Well, I, I found it in contrast to the, um, it never sounded to me like he was being strict or admonishing people. And he seemed much more open-hearted and accepting of people from various different walks of life and discipline. And so I was surprised to hear that yeah. or read that. Sorry. Yeah. Some of the suttas and Buddha is pretty tough. You know, he uses strong words. You fool, basically. <laughs> so this is a part when we're engaging with the sutta and, you know, keep our um, heart and mind open and see how we take in uh, this kind of interactions. Um, what is meaningful when we read this? Yeah. So I'm conscious that uh, we're out of time now. Um, and uh, I wanted to just um, close this out by sharing um, the teaching team's deep gratitude uh, for you showing up. Um, this made it so much more fun studying a sutta like this. And uh, and also learn so much. I think if it's not you showing up, we probably are not as motivated <laughs> to kind of really dig in into a sutta like this. And so I really deep bows to you all for being here and practicing and studying together. And I also wanted to have a deep bow to Nancy, uh, who's uh, our registrar and helping 
us to set things up and get everybody to find this Zoom room <laughs> for us to get together. And the many people behind the scene to help us um, put this class together in a seeing and unseen ways. So maybe um, uh, just uh, one word about uh, what's coming up for those who might be wondering. Uh, we are going to teach another class in April, um, and I believe the states are on the IMC calendar. Is it right, Diana? Yeah, so it's April 17th, 20th, 22nd, and 24th. It's, again, this uh, four-class series. Um, we will figure out what we <laughs> will be teaching um, shortly. And... Uh, um, and then uh, finally, we will do a dedication of merit together uh, collectively. And so if you just want to take a moment, maybe take in everybody. Maybe this last, um, uh, the Sutta of the Buddha's last days have brought some inspiration in you and some warmth in your heart. And maybe this study and practice have brought a lot of curiosity in you. In whatever ways, the goodness that has accrued in this last four days, uh, studying, practicing together, may it benefit ourselves, and may it bring benefits to people around you. May you be a source of inspiration and goodness to others. May all beings find peace. May all beings be happy. Thank you, everybody. And you can unmute and then say bye to everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. It's wonderful Thank to you. see you all and put this together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Kumi.